Welcome to today's episode of the Routing Table Podcast. My name is Rick and I'm here with my co-host Melchior. Hey Melchior. Hey Rick. Today we are joined by Andre Tunk. Hey Andre. Hey, how are you doing? So Andre is a, according to his LinkedIn, he's an internet infrastructure architect. But currently uh, he doesn't really have an active role because he recently left his job at Cisco. And is, is currently enjoying some time off, which... Yeah, gave him some time to uh, to join us here for an interesting conversation that on probably a, a number of wide ranging topics from like you know, we can talk about BGP, DNS, cloud networking, uh, sockets, programming, de- software development as a network engineer, and all kinds of other stuff. But before we dive in, Andre, can you shortly introduce yourself to the listeners and give a little bit of background of where you came from? Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, so first of all, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, introducing myself, I have a very wide range of interests. Uh, I guess I've been sort of in this industry for about 20 years. Um, anything ranging from starting typically like at a help desk uh, and worked quite a bit of service providers, both on the uh, systems uh, engineering and administration side of things. And then later on, really focused more on on networking and, and, and peering and so on and so forth. And then... Uh, I guess uh, a lot of people may know me from a company I, I started called BGP Mon. So I do a lot of, uh, or I know a lot about that. Um, and the last, uh, yeah, like you were saying, eight years or so, I've worked at um, a company called OpenDNS, which was then acquired by Cisco. And uh, yeah, I did a lot of uh, Anycast, uh, building teams, as well as focusing on uh, yeah, a lot of uh, the journey to cloud native networking. Yeah, it's very interesting because... I was first introduced to BGP Mon and then also yourself back in 2009, I believe, when I was like, wow, this is this is a very, very cool tool to, to get started with. And so that's a project that you started by yourself? Yeah, that's right. Um, it's interesting. So, so you know, some of your listeners may not know, but we're all Dutch. I, I'm originally from the Netherlands and um, I moved to Canada, Vancouver uh, around, um, I think it was in 2007. Um, so that's already quite a while ago. Um, and once I moved here, um, I had quite a few a bit of time on my hands because obviously I didn't know that many people yet. And my uh, my girlfriend uh, was going to school at night. So I had a lot of time and um, I kind of dove, I had a problem at work uh, regarding BGP and we were leaking private ASNs and, and stuff like that. Ouch. Bug. <laughs> Anyways, I, want, I wanted to solve that problem because the only way I knew was because someone was sending me these angry emails and I was like, ah, oh, crap. But if you did show BGP, I, I, you couldn't really see it so what happened was i needed to have an external kind of looking glass to do that and i was like well i can't check this thing 24 hours a day so i need a tool and then i kind of discovered that you have all these you know you have route views and and they have all this data and ripe risks and i started basically parsing this data and uh, looking for it automatically and and that's kind of what the beginnings of bgp mon was and then i shared it with a few folks and uh, they said hey can i have your code blah 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 and i was like well um, it's very messy, you know, how it goes when you still go. But I build a website around it and you can just sign it up and I made it a service. And then it kind of became this service for, yeah, BGP hijack detection or, or general BGP policy validation. That's kind of how it started, just to, to learn a little bit of more programming and to solve a particular problem that I had and kind of took on its own life. So if we take a step back there, um, your, your background is in network engineering, but throwing together something like BGP Mon, basically in, in in a short while, I mean, I couldn't do it with with the bare minimal software development skills that I have. So, what what came first, your your network engineering background or or the software engineering? 
Yeah, that's a good question. So I think what came first was um, a little bit more on the sysadmin side of things. So when I was uh, very early on in my career uh, as a student, I worked at a company um, in the Netherlands that was sort of an outsourcer for some of the largest ISPs in the Netherlands. And so they would outsource the maintenance of their mail clusters, LDAP clusters, uh, web clusters, reverse proxies, like anything you need sort of on the system side to run an ISP to that company. And I was there as a student, as a part-time thing. And uh, a lot of my job was helping out there. And a lot of that was writing little shell scripts to make the deployment of new virtual hosts easier or to validate certain LDAP things. So I think that's where I learned some of my initial scripting thing. And I came very far with just doing Bash um, and then over the years in university, I had to learn some programming, but never really liked it um, until my first job, uh, which, which uh, I was doing uh, sort of a bunch of network stuff for SurfNet in the Netherlands uh, on the NOC, uh, but also did sort of um, a lot of network automation, um, which was pretty rare back then. Um, and that's where I learned some of the PHP and Perl stuff. And that really, from that point on, I saw the power of oh, if you combine these two skills, let's say, like the, the networking part and the uh, you know, basic programming part, um, you can do things that, that didn't really exist much in the world of network engineering yet. Like you have to remember this is like, I don't know, 18 years ago or so, <laughs> uh, which was really exciting. Um, and so that was uh, that's kind of where it started. I, I wouldn't say that I was necessarily a good programmer. I was just like, you know, I can hack this thing together and, and uh, really opened up Thing. So right now, I think, uh, obviously, um, network automation is, is becoming a lot more popular. Uh, but back then, it wasn't really. They were two separate worlds. Uh, where Even sysadmin and network admin was a separate world, and software engineering was so totally separate. So it was quite interesting to kind of marry all those three skills together. And uh, yeah, you could do some really cool stuff. Yeah, it's definitely a topic which uh, is uh, more and more, let's say, converging um, in the, <laughs> in that sense. Um, you mentioned you learned uh, PHP and Perl. What would you learn these days if you are, because a lot of our listeners are new into networking or at least are in networking, but have to become more of an SRE or uh, at least more into mm -hmm. a DevOps kind of style of working? Yeah, so... Um I mean, my recommendation to to other network folks has always been Python. Um, I think Python is is um, easy. It's very easy to learn, um, uh, and there, especially in the the other reason for the network world is I think the network world as a whole has kind of converged on Python, which means that a lot of the network libraries, like talking to network devices and stuff like that, or modeling network devices, ex there is libraries and tools out there in Python. Uh, so that's would be my recommendation, sort of for network folks. Um, you know, Perl is is kind of out the door, and a lot of people do that anymore. Uh, new tools like Go are quite um, popular as well. Um, I personally find that a little bit. Um, I think the barrier to entry is a little bit higher than Python, and I think Python just. I think it's more practical for network folks because other network people tend to use a lot of Python, the libraries, and so on and so forth. So. That would be my recommendation. Yeah, I think I uh, I agree. It's definitely uh, um, uh, well. If, if you want need to learn something now, it, it's definitely probably Python. Um, going back to uh, a BGP Mon, it's it's uh, maybe you know a topic which is really close to me: uh, uh, routing security. 
um, uh, was that back then as well such a big topic? Because obviously the last couple of years <clears throat> we've seen huge interest and, and huge uptake in discussions around routing security and trying to solve uh, uh, issues in that in that space with RPKI origin validation. Um, you sort of set the scene back then already. Was it purely as you explained because um, you faced some, uh, let's say, uh, issues yourself or was that as big as an issue as it is right now in general? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think uh, obviously the problem was kind of known that it happened every now, like the problem of BGP hijacks uh, happened, but it, it certainly did not have the same amount of attention as it as it has today. Uh, RPKI was, um, it, well, it existed in, there was an ITF working group, uh, the Slider working group that, uh, that was working on the specs. BGP SEC was also still, a lot of folks are talking about that. Um, but it certainly wasn't as popular as it is now. Um, and, uh, but you know, these hijacks happened all the time. I think it was just, um, underreported. So I, I think one of the things that BGP Mon did really well, and that we took kind of as one of our responsibilities was, uh, reporting on these things and, and blo by blogging about it and, and kind of creating awareness, um, because a lot of times people say, well, yeah, these things happen and it's just a fact of life and, and yada, 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 and, which was true. And I think one of the things we did was basically started creating a, um, an archive of these things and kind of showing, you know, what happened when, and, uh, we tried to be always very data driven. So not really assigned blame, but more kind of like, Hey, this is what we see. This is, this is what happened. And these, and these folks were involved. And so, if, yeah, if you go to the blog, you see a lot of those things. And I think certainly helped further kind of move, I think, routing security ahead and the awareness of that. Um, while at the same time, the internet's obviously becoming more and more um, important and valuable. And I think uh, people are just fed up with these things. We can't, we can't do that anymore. But interestingly, um, I was looking back to one of the more popular BGP Mon blogs the other day. And I think it is... Tomorrow, we're recording this on, what, January 18th. So I think January 19th, uh, exactly 10 years ago, I published a blog about RPKI. And that was my first sort of experience with RPKI. So I heard about this thing. Hey, the ITF's doing this thing, RPKI, and it's going to solve <laughs> all the problems. That was kind of the problem or this, this, Almost. The, the promise, right? <laughs> and I was like, okay, I got, I got to learn more about this and I want to build it into BGPmon. And so I think as of 10 years ago, BGPmon had support for RPKI. I think the birthday is tomorrow where you could say, hey, you know, I have... Uh, or my prefix is RPKI signed. It has a ROA uh, and do additional checks. And we also created this uh, this BGP Mon who is interface, so you could do some RPKI checking. Uh, because back then you didn't have like right now. There's some web tools you can you can throw in a prefix and you get all the RPKI details that didn't exist. So um, had to write all of that from scratch, which under the covers was a lot of Perl code, <laughs> <laughs> trying to do some RPKI stuff. Um, so again, I learned a lot and wasted a lot of time on that. But um, yeah, I think it's fun that you mentioned that because I think it's exactly 10 years ago, which in that 10 years, we come a long way, but uh, still have a little <laughs> yeah, bit more. Absolutely. So Andre, if we uh, fast forward in time a little bit, because we're, we're still in, t in 2010, but uh, <laughs> if we, we think, take steps a little bit further into like the 2020s um you mentioned when we were discussing this this podcast a little earlier about what you call 
cloud native networking or cloud native um, control planes, etc. So, and I think you're you're referring to as as I mean, in the past, you if you would start up a company or if you would like launch something on the internet, you would buy servers, buy routers, buy switches, um, register yourself with your local registry and, and uh, start advertising IP addresses in, in, in the internet. So you, you've made your own AS and a whole lot of complex stuff. Um, and, and we love that. Um, but now, of course, more and more traffic seems to disappear in, into certain clouds, uh, which has a lot of different benefits. We have a lot more segmentation and a lot more spread that you need your applications to work on, right? With microservices, there's no longer one service you need to address, but like like 25 different ones to run like one single website. So what what's your take on that? What's your take on, on seeing that change on the internet and, and what's the problems that you that you see there? Yeah. Um so it's it's a very exciting change, I think, or opportunity. So the reason I'm looking at it is like it's yeah, it's new. There's lots of opportunity. There's lots to learn, um, and um, you know, lots of folks are moving to like you were saying, AWS and, and Google and, and so on and so forth. But you're right. Like so, uh, one of the things I was always thinking of is like I learned a lot about building these infrastructures from sort of the last few years at, at OpenDNS and, and and Cisco where like oh let's build a new pop or let's we want to do some any cost and and like you're saying you like you need to get a rack of gear somewhere uh, like I want to open up something in Tokyo okay what's the best data center there and now I need to ship some hardware there now like I have to have IP addresses like all this stuff will you know cost you a million dollars um, it will take months of work and and you know, it's very interesting that nowadays it can only, you can do it in minutes. And that kind of really fascinates me. And so one of the things I've been looking at both, um, you know, professionally, um, but also sort of as a hobby is like, what would it take if you would start from scratch today? Let's say you wanted to start a CDN or a DNS provider or, you know, something that needs to be deployed very high available and low latency. How would you do that today? And so I've been looking a lot at the um, the cloud providers out there or the infrastructure service providers. And so, um, you know, one of the sort of the, the big use cases that I look at is, let's say that I want to deploy a CDN type thingy or a, uh, you know, high performance infrastructure uh, globally. What, how would I do that? And so there's a few things that you need to solve. Um, so one of them is you need you need to determine where are you going to run, like which providers are you going to run, and which ones do you want to use. Um, what are you going to use for um, you know the data plane? Let's say that you need to deploy a router, and that's another hobby of mine. Like, can we get rid of of bare metal routers, and can we do it in software? And how would you do that? And then what is the control plane problem? So um, for, for those uh, who've ever looked at my blog. Uh, I've done a lot of uh, experiments with various cloud providers to see what would it take to deploy an any cost service uh, using basically any cost as a service uh, providers out there. And there's a few out there. Um, so I looked at um, things like StackPath, Packet, AWS. They all allow you to deploy any cost services. Um, so I think one of the really cool one is um, that I liked was StackPath, where you can deploy. I actually have a demo video on on the blog on tunk.io, 
where you can see how I deploy an any-costed service uh, in under a minute in various data centers around the world, which totally blew my mind because having built some of this the traditional way takes several months and millions of dollars of hardware. And here I was doing it with like one Terraform command and I timed it and it was under a minute, right? And obviously it's not the same. You have to continue building on that, but that's really something that uh, it's like, yeah, yeah, we've, we've come a long way. Um, but you know, these are these. That's kind of like okay. So there's a few providers where you can do that. Stackpuff makes it very easy to do it with containers. Um, I like Packet because they give, which is now part of uh, Acronix, it gives you bare metal capabilities and run BGP directly on the bare metal with with them, and then you can announce space and can do any cost like that. And then AWS is something called Global Accelerator, um, where they run this as a service and essentially announce the IP addresses that you give them or you. You, you lease from them all around the world, and then they will send it to wherever your origins live, which is very exciting too. So now you have a few options. Um, and so th sort of the next step that, that I looked at was, okay, so now I have a few of these folks. Um, now I want to run, uh, because you know if I deploy a big Juniper or Cisco or whatever, you know I get many hundreds of millions of packets through these devices as, as a router or a firewall. Um, so what... What if I don't want to deploy hardware, right? Like I want to continue doing this on the VMs or containers. Well, now I have to start solving sort of the, the Linux data plane problem. And so there's a few uh, blogs about that as well, where I explored, first of all, how do, you, how do we know how fast Linux is today, right? So a lot of um, folks have virtual appliances nowadays, uh, which essentially is just a VM of a hardware appliance. Um, and so, but what is the performance of that thing? And what does it mean if I deploy it on the cloud? Um, and so there's a few articles that I wrote where I looked into that. And, um, you know, one of the conclusions that, that, that I came to as well, uh, you know, there's a bunch of caveats, but on Linux, you can do roughly a million to 2 million packets per CPU core, right? And so if you have more cores, then you can scale horizontally. Um, and then it basically becomes a game of how many cores can you plant into the machine? Um, which is interesting. So then you can scale that horizontally. Uh, but then in AWS, everything's a little bit differently because if you do this on AWS, where a lot of folks do it, then you run on VMs. And so not only do you have the limitation in your own environment, your own VM or Linux machine, but also on the hypervisor. And so uh, I took a fairly expensive experiment where I... I I, I rented the most expensive uh, 100 gig instances that AWS <laughs> had back then for a while and, and did a whole bunch of experiments and was able to get 100 gig through these uh, EC2 instances, but also learned that um, in total, you can only do, and this was like last summer, so this is like a six-month-old experiment, 8 million packets per second um, on, a, on, a, on the highest-end AWS VM. And if you did sort of Rx, Tx at the same time, so imagine that this VM is a, a VPN concentrator or a firewall, so you have some traffic coming in and going out another interface, and you could only do 6 million or 3 million per direction. And it's like, okay, well, you know, that's still pretty good for a VM. And, you know, obviously, why is this slow? Well, AWS has to... Uh, to limit uh, each VM because otherwise you have noisy, noisy neighbor problem and all that kind of stuff. So then you're like, okay, okay, now I have my spec. I can do 6 million or 3 million packets per second per, per direction. And let's say that I'm building a, a firewall or something as a service, then, um, then, then I need to start scaling that horizontally, 
right? By the way, on the on the hardware side of things, if you run on bare metal, I looked at experiments like DPDK and XDP as alternatives as well. And and with that, you could see that I think on bare metal with Linux, I was able to get I needed 30 cores to do 28 million packets per second. So about you know a million per core. Like imagine you have two hmm. 10 gig NICs and you do a packet generator on both NICs. So every NIC is TXRX fully 10 gig, 14 million packets per second. Um, need about 30 cores at Linux with DPDK, which is, you know, what a lot of the virtual appliances use and XDP or sorry, uh, VPP, which is the, the forwarding engine and open source forwarding engine that works with DPDK. You only need a three cores. So that's quite remarkable. Like, so all of a sudden it's wow. 10 times as fast <laughs> by using just a different technology. Now, unfortunately, the technologies have a bit of a steep learning curve, so it's not super easy to get into. Um, but it leaves a lot, if you, if you just think about budget, it leaves you with a lot more course to do actual deep packet inspection or firewalls or whatever, because those 30 cores were just forwarding, like just handling the packets, right? So it doesn't leave a lot of things for others. And then finally you have XDP, and I think the same test was five cores, uh, which is a little bit more of a hybrid. So anyway, so that's sort of the, okay, that's that. And, and, and so now if you don't do this in Amazon and I want to build a, I don't know, 100 gig capable firewall, let's say, uh, then I need more than one EC2 instance, even the most high end. So how does that work, right? So then you start thinking, okay, well, that's just like the web people do, right? So did you have one website or one web server and to serve what I need, I need 10. And maybe during peak, I need 20. And overnight, I only need five. And that's what happens in what we call cloud-native environments where you have these out-of-scaling groups. Um, but a lot of the web stuff is fair, is I want to say fairly simple, but the web people are going to obviously say, well, Andre doesn't know what he's talking about. But <laughs> I think it is a little bit more simple. And a lot of the technologies have evolved in such a way that it's made simpler. Um, and a lot of this has to do with state, right? So if 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 you're just serving like a simple website, which nobody does, but um, then it's fairly simple. But on the network side, if this is a, a firewall, say, um, then all of a sudden you have to do with state. And you know every flow creates a state. So if I all of a sudden scale this cluster from 10 to 15 nodes, and I don't, I'm using ECMP over this because I can't use a load balancer. Well, you can, but a load balancer has the exact same problem. If you build a load balancer in software, you, they can only go so fast. If, you, if I do it in Amazon, I probably get the same limitations, like 3 million or 6 million packets per second. So I'll have the same problem. So let's just say that you spray ECMP over these 10 nodes and I want to go to 15, that means that some flows are going to be remapped to a different node. And what happens if all of a sudden mid-flow, um, uh, a packet lands on a different node? Well, you know, the firewall doesn't know what this is. So is it going to drop it? Well, that's unacceptable. So now you need to figure out, okay, now I need to have uh, separate the state from the data nodes as well, or even and, and some of the control plane stuff. And you know, obviously, we can go really deep there. But those are sort of the interesting problems that that I'm super interested in in solving and doing a lot of experiments with. And um, at at Cisco, we solved some of these problems in very interesting ways. Through, for example, how we built uh, a cloud native IPsec gateway that could do hundreds of that on by spec can do many many dozens or hundreds of gigs of IPsec traffic for many millions of sessions um, by building something like we said like this, taking that into account in a cloud native way and magically remap to different nodes without the loss of sessions. Um, 
So anyway, so that's uh, maybe in summary, sort of this this cloud networking thing. You have to look at which cloud providers. Uh, you have to look at the data plane technology, whether you use Linux or DPDK or XDP or or even maybe more um, more rare uh, technologies that also exist. And then how, then you have to think about yeah, how do I scale this like the big. Uh, cloud providers are doing can you just add more nodes because you have to scale horizontally and what does that mean for your application and then and for for the listeners here all our applications tend to be routers firewalls vpn concentrators nat boxes well those things other than the routers maybe tend to keep a lot of state so how does that work with out of scaling and that that opens up some really interesting uh, problems and but also opportunities and and fun puzzles to solve Right. <laughs> I think you, you sort of summarized the, the whole promise of cloud. Um, <laughs> it's, um, well, yeah, well, now we just have to execute. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So uh, th- throw in some uh, state distribution uh, via message bus and, uh, and it's all fixed. Um, but yeah, I think that that's one of the biggest challenges, right? Because a scale up isn't uh, the solution anymore. There is a certain limit of throwing uh, uh, more speed into CPUs and throwing more memory in one box. Um, so uh, in the end, the only solution is scale out, um, especially if you want to scale beyond uh, some of the numbers you just mentioned and, and and go further. And I really like the idea of, um, let's say, cloud-native routing, where in the true separation of a control plane and forwarding plane is actually happening because currently the, let's say, separation of control plane and forwarding plane is still within uh, the same box, whether it's two VMs or whether it's a, a control plane running on x86 and, and forwarding in, in ASICs. Um, but yeah, so th- th- really interesting uh, stuff. Is there anything, let's say, more concrete you are uh, currently working on in that perspective? Um well, yeah, a bunch of experiments mostly. So I think uh, sort of of the three topics I explored, uh, like where could you run it? So the where, like the AWSs, the packets, the, the uh, stack paths and stuff like that. So I think I've, I have a fairly good understanding and and shared that on my blogs. Um, then the second part was the data plane technologies um, and where we learned that, you know, with Linux, we can only do so much. Like I need 30 cores to do, you know, 28 million packs per second. But if I go DPDK or XDP, all of a sudden I'm 10 times as fast. So I think um, I, I did a lot of experiments there and, and documented that on my blogs for everyone to read. Um, and sort of the last part is, yeah, now how do you take the control plane stuff, which I worked on some some to some degree professionally. And, and I'm very interested sort of now take uh, further as well, maybe uh, as she was saying in the introduction, I'm, I'm taking some time off to do a whole bunch of, well, to relax. It's been an intense eight years um, at my previous gig, but also to, yeah, to do some more learning, experimentation and uh, stuff like that. And um, I have another project we can talk about later maybe, but uh, this is one of the other sort of the third pillar that, that I would love to dig in a little bit more myself as well. And I think what you're saying is true, right? So the concept of... Um, data plane and control plane separation is not new. Like that concept exists for a while and the big vendors have all implemented that, but all kind of within a box or maybe a cluster of boxes. Like, well, I can have a pair of firewalls and, you know, they sync stuff or I can cluster a bunch of, um, I don't know, Juniper or Cisco chassis together. But it's all fairly tightly coupled 
and what I'm really interested in is how can you make it loosely coupled? How can we have somewhat of a standardized API, say, between the control plane and the data plane? So can you have a, a general x86 or whatever control plane system that has maybe gRPC or RESTful interfaces and then I can have any data plane on it. And I think it's interesting. There's a few vendors out there, like there's the, the NOS providers, the, the network operating system providers out there that are solving a sort of similar problem where you say you can bring any data plane you want, like whatever chips or whatever, um, and then we do the network operating system. And so they have to think about similar challenges, although they're still very much focused on, I think, uh, white boxes and stuff. And I'm really much like... I. What what if we can just do it all in the cloud using VMs? If you if you look at VMs do you, in your testing, did you see uh, a lot of difference in performance when you compared it to bare metal, even when using things like DPDK or XDP uh, in there? Yeah, yeah, we saw quite a bit of difference. Um, so the the testing I did mostly on the performance side was the the AWS one. So uh, on bare metal, uh, used uh, Packet, now part of Equinix bare metal, um, and you know you just get quite a bit of performance out of it because you're running on high-end bare metal machines and um, and that's you know it's great because you get access to all the low-level things and it works really well. Um, for the AWS one, I was very excited about uh, like, oh, 100 gig, this is awesome, right? Uh, but then I realized, you know, I can only really get, you know, and depending on my measurements, somewhere between 8 million to 6 million packets per second out of the whole mm -hmm. machine with many thousands of flows, right? Because there's the per flow limitation because the flow typically hits one CPU. So you can only go as fast as one CPU can go, uh, which is, you know, I think a very interesting thing to remember as well. Once, once you go sort of this route, like doing it on just commodity hardware and CPUs, um, if you use re regular Linux, um, it load balances flows just like you know network devices do. So it's a five tuple hash, and then it would load balance over what's called a network queue, and the network queue is served by a CPU. So if you have only one flow going through the system, and even though you have I don't know twenty cores, that one flow gets hashed, goes onto a, what's called an ingress queue, and that queue is uh, served by one IRQ handler, which always runs on one CPU. So you can only go as fast as one CPU goes. So, for example, if you build an IPsec service or any VPN service, uh, that is typically one flow. It's a, what we call a jumbo flow and with many flows in it. But um, So that means that even though you have plenty of CPU resources left, you can only go as fast as that one CPU core can go, which is maybe one million packets per second, which may be a gigabit per second or something like that at the slowest lowest packet size. So that's really a problem once you want to serve, uh, well, I want to support five gig IPsec. Like, well, that's a bit more challenging with regular Linux. So anyways, um, Amazon, even though they have 100 gig instances, uh, you can only do a few million packets per second. And this is what, which is natural to network people. We often think in... Uh, millions of, of, of packets per second measurements versus bits per second, um, which becomes uh, on the Linux world, like in the cloud provider sheet, it's very hard to find any packet per second limitations. Everybody says, oh, this is a 10 gig instance or a 100 gig instance. And you have to spend a lot of time on figuring out what's underneath. Um, but yeah, I was able to do 100 gig, but at 9,000 bytes per packet, like at you know 9K jumbo frames, uh, which is kind of a little bit of cheating, right? So yeah, certainly uh, limitations, a lot of difference between that. Uh, also fully understandable, like do 
due to what we just talked about, right? Like the the noisy neighbor problem. And so they have, it's not like they can't do it. It's just like they have to enforce limits to make sure that the other VM that happens to be the unfortunate guy that is on the same bare metal machine as Andre doing his testing uh, so that he's protected. <laughs> no, exactly. I, I don't want to be the, the guy also buying that super expensive <laughs> yeah. VM and then... And then yeah, getting blown <laughs> away by my packet generator. <laughs> yeah. So in, indeed, like we're like we discussed, that the I think you hit a very good point. I mean, we've we've talked about separating control plane versus data plane for, I mean, our we work at Juniper. We've been talking about that for thirty years, um, right? But then it means that the CPU of the router is not involved in the packet forwarding. That's the first separation of control plane. But in your story, you're talking about this in a much broader sense, and then. If you think about like enterprise data centers where you separate like an IP fabric, which just routes packets from one server to the other, where on top of that, you have something like a network virtualization layer um, doing some ton- some sort of tunneling uh, over it. I mean, that's already also a separation of control plane and data plane. But as you said, and I think you hit it very well, is, is that's still very tightly coupled with each other. And if, if that central controller fails in, in some way or the other, or or missed misses some messaging somewhere to a server, then then a lot of stuff can break and, and fail, um, and that makes it very fragile. And I really feel like where we need like a more, I mean, back in the old days we would say a carrier grade solution, right? <laughs> where you, I remember the term being used in like optical systems where you could pull out the CPU cards and, and everything would keep running. Yeah. And they said, well, let's try this with your router. And I'm like, no, 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 let's not do that. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't work like what, like that. They say, but it's carrier grade, right? I said, yeah, well, we use a different term for that. <laughs> um, it's it's also a mentality, I think, right? I mean, I've had these conversations with with folks as well, and and talking about the concept of having a control plane, indeed, in a controller or centralized, and just put forwarding in your remote offices, but no one. Is, or at least a couple of years back, no one was interested in doing that, right? It's all. It doesn't feel right if the box doesn't have the intelligence itself. Maybe one of the things to, like, obviously you can take this as far as you want. And I know, um, um, like, if you think about this sort of in the the big telco worlds, like, uh, obviously in the short term, no one's going to replace their high-end Juniper, Cisco, Nokia, whatever, uh, routers with with a bunch of x86 boxes. Because, you know, even with things like DPDK, it's fairly hard to compete with high-density 10 gig, 100 gig interfaces, right? Even and, and even though I think it's super exciting to think about that use case, uh, it may not always uh, make sense. Where this really makes sense is um, sort of the proliferation of what we see in what's called the SASE market. And I'm not sure if you know that term, but it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a term that's coined by Gartner. And it's where, um, you know, where a lot of the cloud delivered security world is going. So more and more folks are uh, delivering um, services such as uh, proxies as a service where a lot of scanning is done, firewall as a service, NATing, uh, IPsec, VPN, remote access type gateways. And so there's these these companies that, that built all of that as a service. So, you know, you have lots of, re- it solves the remote access problem, it solves the security problem and visibility and all that kind of stuff. So there, a lot, to do this at scale and to do tenant separation and all that kind of stuff, that's where the the, the virtualized networking stuff, you know, what we traditionally used VNFs for, 
um, and this problem really helps because all of a sudden you want to do a lot of this in software um, because a lot of the firewalls are really just software or the IDSs or so what they need regular CPUs and, and Linux type work to do this. So that's where this use case really starts to make sense um, to do it in a cloud delivered way. Um, and so I think that's something to keep in mind where it's like, well, Andre, you know, it's kind of weird to me. Like, I'm never going to replace my 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 100 gig ports with, you know, uh, high density 100 gig ports with, with Linux servers. Maybe not. Um, but uh, for for uh, sort of if you go up a little bit higher in the layer for NAT boxes, for firewalls, for VPNs uh, and all that kind of stuff, well, those tend to be Linux boxes already. Um, they might be hidden behind a, a Juniper or a Cisco CLI, but what's happening under the covers is, is a lot of times that. And so those are the ones that you want to scale horizontally. Uh, and because you want to scale it horizontally, you, you have to think about all these problems that we just talked about. And uh, we initially we just we talked a little bit about the control plane stuff that that's needed for this because like you said data plane stuff seems to be sorted out with DPDK and all kinds of interesting uh, things that you can tweak mm -hmm. on on the Linux kernel but the control plane is not fixed so would there be an opening to do this with an open standard I mean because especially in the cloud world everything is so locked in for good reasons <laughs> I'd say mm -hmm. I mean. Uh, as a, as a supplier of a cloud service, you want to lock your customer in it's for so, uh, in some way to uh, get the revenue, of course. So cloud services are much more pushed than bare VMs, let's say. So that's also what I see with customers that, that tend to be more in favor of like AWS services rather than, um, than really buying uh, simple storage or simple VMs with them, for example. So... If you would scale this in some way or the other, would you say that there's room for a standard? Yeah, that's a good question. I haven't really thought about that. Um, I think, I mean, certainly what you're seeing is uh, the continued investment in uh, open source um, uh, routing suites, right? Like uh, FRR is uh, like, well, that's pretty old. Started the Zebra, Quagga, Quagga, now FRR. And, and a lot of investment still going into that. So I think that's great to have open source uh, alternatives out there. It's actually quite remarkable how many new BGP, open source BGP daemons have come out over the last, I don't know, three or four years, um, where, you know, obviously I've been in the world of BGP monitoring and, and open source type stuff. And uh, I haven't seen that many things come out like more in the last two years or three years than, than probably in the 20 years before that. Um, and so there's certainly the open source control planes exist uh, and becoming more and more mature and well-maintained. Um, and then there's also the, uh, yeah, the network operating systems, the NOS type uh, vendors that, that start to exist. Um, and I think that's an interesting thing as well where uh, that market starts to exist. Uh, but you're right. So you're still buying into. So what I'm really talking about here is a control plane. Like a, you know, you, now you have a separate piece of software that just does the control plane. Um, yeah, you certainly still need to solve the interaction between the control plane and the data plane. If you have fully separated that, then you want to make that ubiquitous. Um, and then, um, but the harder problem I found was, um, you know, the the state of the control plane. And, and the state of the data plane. And I think um, I've seen several folks try to solve this different ways. Um, and I think this has been a lesson for me in general. It, instead of reinventing the wheel, 
there are, for example, very high performant and well-tested key value stores out there in the world. Uh, so key value stores are, are kind of like databases, but they tend to be, and they live in memory and they're super fast and stuff like that. So there's like the Redis's and etcds and uh, even memcache and stuff like that that exist uh, that come from, say, the web scale world. Uh, and so we've certainly tested those to see, can we store some of our network state in there? Can you store all your NAT flows in a Redis server, for example, which is just a really fast database? Um, and um, can you then sync that to all the worker nodes or can the worker nodes on demand just in time when they hit the flow that they don't know about, can they fetch it from that uh, from that database and insert it in their local forwarding table or state database? on time and and does that work and to be honest sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't because your budget is very little if you own if you have to do very several millions of packets per second then you know and if these then, then you cannot go out and wait you know five milliseconds to get that flow information um, so I think it's a mix of yeah you need to have open source implementation of control planes or even closed sourced ones uh, that's fine too and then yeah the big question is how does it all tie together where does the state live um, because the control plane needs to be scaled as well it can't just be one box it also has to be cloud native so I need to have four machines and how does that all work or where does the BGP packet go and how does it get replicated well what that means is the BGP in an ideal world, in my dreamland, is that the BGP speaker is just a piece of software that that speaks the BGP protocol, but the state is stored in yet another system behind it. Um, and so, if the BGP packet all of a sudden arrives on a different worker node, then the state is available. Um, so, I think you know, I don't know if the industry will go that far, but it's certainly very interesting to explore that. Um, I think SD-WAN at some point tried to solve some of that, but um, like you were saying, uh, I, th I think you were saying earlier, like can the state really live far enough away? Some SD-WAN boxes have gone there, others haven't. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. I think that's why this this topic is so interesting. Like it can still go many different directions, and there's still room for lots of experiments. Yeah, to be honest, if I hear your your explanation of 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 the control plane first, it it sounds a little bit like OpenFlow, right? If you store a lot of flow information in a certain central database and like the first packet hits uh, doesn't hit a cache and then then it gets programmed and stuff that that sounds a bit like how openflow was uh, conceived yeah and and i think we've learned a lot of lessons there like how far it scale and how far it doesn't scale and um and so you know obviously it wasn't a magic thing and um yeah so i think that's a that's a that's a good observation and um and then the question is yeah what what can we learn from that and has the world changed now as well with the proliferation of a lot of sort of uh, managed high volume state databases and stuff like that? Yeah. Yeah. And it, like you said, especially in the SASE world, I think is, is definitely interesting. It's like, I, that's like a next generation SD-WAN, right? Because SD-WAN is just like SDN is, is kind of a term mm -hmm. meaning a lot of different things. Um, and, and I feel like that there's like a big ask for, like you said, a, a good secure way to, to scale this stuff and, and not being tied into a, yeah, a, a single version of some sort of a cloud service. That's, that's I think, very important. Yeah, I want to, yeah, I think that's very important. So everything I say, like I'm, I'm trying to stretch this very wide, like, but I think that the, 
where this particular thinking really helps or is useful is in the SASE market where folks are trying to build cloud-native uh, VPNs, NAT gateways, IPsec connectors, uh, firewalls, because those are your typical Linux-type applications. And those and they're very CPU intensive because of all the state and deep packet inspection that they need to do, and that's where this particular topic is most appropriate. So c- coming back to your original idea of of this project, c- can you build a CDN without having your own pops and, and equipment now these days? Yeah, you can. Um, I, I think you can, um, and I think uh, there are folks that are using um, many of these third-party folks. In fact, so one of the cool things, I was looking at this, I forgot the URL, but some of you guys or your listeners might know, there is a, uh, I think it's called bgp.services, but we'll have to double check that. It's like a Google Doc with all the uh, VPS providers that support BGP, for example, where you can bring your own space and they, um, and you can talk BGP with that VPS, the virtual um, or the the virtual machine provider, um, and they will announce it. And so there have been folks that have been using that um, and built their own sort of AnyCost DNS service or their own mini CDN. Now, some of these VPS providers are more reputable than others. um, But I think if you use folks like uh, the ones that I played with, um, uh, StackPath and uh, uh, Packet, which is now part of Equinix, those are very reputable uh, providers. They run excellent networks. um, and, And there's a few more. And so if you can bring your own IPs, um, you can certainly use those folks to start building your own any costed network, say, if that's what you wanted, and then on top of that, a CDN. Um, now, if you become really big, like if you become the next, uh, I don't know, Cloudflare or Fastly, this may no longer make sense. But that, what I think is very interesting is that you don't need these enormous upfront investments anymore. Uh, so you can start experimenting with something and deploy even 10 nodes or five nodes around the world uh, with pay-as-you-go type models. Uh, so I think that's that's certainly interesting, and I think it's certainly doable um, where you can start something like that. In fact, I have a project running that is sort of like that today um, where I did not have to invest you know, hundreds of thousands or even thousands of dollars. Like It's pay-as-you-go. So how many nodes do you want? Uh, I think it's certainly possible. <laughs> You you are um, making a transition already to my next question. So um, <laughs> so <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and and I totally agree. I think um, uh, let's say what what Cloudflare, Fastly, and Akamai and others are offering is the perfect let's say first step if you want to start offering global services, uh, any cost services. You, you mentioned when we started recording that you started PGP Mon because of a need for a specific tool. And, and you just mentioned your, let's say, latest project, which is uh, mysocket.io. Did that went the same way? Uh, you needed a tool or you wanted to experiment in this case with, let's say, globally offered services via a, uh, let's say, in a cloud fashion style? Yeah, I think... Um Yes and no. So I don't think I had a particular problem to solve. So like the BGP one was interesting because I had my own problem that I needed to solve, and you know that that worked really mm-hmm. well. Um, for mysocket.io is um, so after so obviously I just left Cisco uh, 
decided to take some time off. And one of the things I wanted to do is keep on learning and take. <laughs> What's up? <laughs> yeah. T- t- no, no, I, I, I'm laughing because take because according to uh, LinkedIn, you left Cisco in November and you started mysoccer.io in November. So how much time did you took off? <laughs> oh, I see. Well, I, you know, I, I left a little bit earlier. I, I took some... Uh, anyway, so I, I, it's been... Just kidding. Yeah. Uh, but either way, I wanted to, one of my objectives was to keep on learning and to spend more time on some experiments and, and uh, yeah, but also obviously at my own pace, right? Um, and so I wanted to build on a lot of the things that I blogged about and what we just talked about was like, well, if, if you want to build a CDN, what would it take? And um, and there's a lot of things that I, a bunch of stuff that I wanted to learn as well. Um, I want to learn more about, okay, if I want to take this any cost thing, can, can you really build something on that? Uh, I want to build. Uh, I want to learn more Go, for example, or I want to learn more about uh, you know building more advanced APIs myself. So I, the the thing with that is you need um, there's a bunch of stuff that I wanted to learn more about uh, or uh, improve my skills on, uh, but then you need a project to anchor some of this around. Otherwise, you're just writing one-off little things, which which isn't that much sure. fun. So my socket was an idea that I'd been playing around with a while, for a while. And uh, and I decided to anchor all the things that I wanted to learn around that project. So I guess, <clears throat> so what is my socket? It's essentially, it's a bunch of stuff, but um, I guess you could think of it as a, a global cloud-delivered load balancer, if you will. So it provides you with stable, static, uh, any cost IP or names for your sockets. And your socket is really a, uh, a virtual host, say. So you can have different types of sockets. You can have uh, one for HTTP, HTTPS, which is your regular web type property, which gives you a unique name. Uh, and then we any cost that around the world. But it can also be a TLS or a TCP socket, so a raw TCP port. Um, and so that's any cost around the world using, in, in my case, right now I'm using AWS, but uh, I might swap that to any of the other ones. Um, and then uh, then obviously you need your origins, like something that where your service actually runs because we sit in the middle. And that's sort of unique where we use a secure tunnel from the origin. And your origin could be anything from a server to, to your laptop. Um, and the origin will call out to the MySocket tunnel service and then we set up a tunnel. So the interesting part is that um, the origin only needs egress network access, which means that it can sit behind NAT or many layers of firewalls and no ingress uh, holes have to be poked. And so um, once then a user traffic arrives on any of our any costed edge nodes, um, you, you land on one, whatever the closest edge node is. And then we look up, okay, where is the origin? Where is this tunnel terminated? Which could be on the other side of the world. And we get it there as soon as we can. And then it goes back over the tunnel. So if it's a bunch of use cases. If you have developed a little website on your laptop, for example, and you want to show it off to, uh, to, to your coworker or your customer or whatever, um, this is a typical developer use case, then uh, you don't have to upload it to the cloud. You just run MySocket, make this port available. It's one command all of a sudden it's globally available and you can say, hey, go to this URL and they can see it run on your laptop. Um, So that's one use case. But the other more advanced use case where I'm playing with a little bit now where I got to learn a lot about zero trust and all the authentication frameworks like SAML and OpenID Connect is uh, I have a wiki server. Let's say uh, you you guys work for Juniper. Let's say you have an internal wiki server that you want to make available uh, to your employees or even a contractor, uh, then normally you would have the VPN in. 
Um, and so you have to have a VPN account. And then once you're in, this is the traditional use case. When you VPN, you're basically within the highly secure castle. You made a hole in it. Uh, and typically, once you're in on a VPN, you have a lot of lateral access. You can also hit all these other things in your corporate network. Uh, and which is especially problematic if you want to have uh, a contractor access to your wiki server, which is not a, say, MyCorp or Juniper or whatever employee. Um, so what you really want is for this user to only have access to the wiki. So the traditional use case is now I have to create a Active Directory or corporate account for this contractor. The contractor now VPNs in and has all this lateral access and an account and can start poking around, which I know you can, you can lock down, but a lot of po- folks don't. Like, that's just quite hard. So the use case of this is, okay, the wiki sets up the secure tunnel to the MySocket Edge service, um, and it's all egress. Then the, the contractor comes in, or any of the employees, they hit one of the MySocket uh, proxy servers. Uh, and the first thing you see is this authentication window. Uh, you need to authenticate, so you can log in using you know, Gmail or Google or Facebook, whatever credentials, or using SAML, using your um, uh, corporate credentials. Um, so then we know who you are, and then we can do some other authorization as well to make sure that, yeah, it's, this is indeed at juniper.com or andre at contractor.com or whatever. And if those rules apply, then we'll let you through, and then we stitch those two sessions together, the secure tunnel and the thing. And so uh, that's another use case. So there's a bunch of use cases. There's the Kubernetes plugins that we created as well. Uh, similar, like you have a Kubernetes workload, you can make a global load balancer all of a sudden with basically one command. Um, so anyways, a lot of uh, learnings around there is I learned a lot more about Kubernetes. How do you build Kubernetes services? How do you do authentication all that kind of stuff? And so this is currently a bit of an experiment as well. It's like, yeah, how would you build a globally distributed, any costed value add service, uh, but without deploying any hardware yourself? So Andre, would you say that this is this is like because it's it's an open source project, right? You're you're you've published everything. Uh, parts of it are open source. So all the clients are open source. The Go code, the Python code, uh, yes. But the service itself is um, like the proxy code is is not open source. But every, anybody can sign up. It's a free service for now. So how does this compare to uh, a Cloudflare service? I think it's called Argo tunneling, which. Yeah, I think it's very it's very similar. Like, I think obviously there's a few folks. I mean, so I should say that this is for me. This is an experiment just to to kind of see if this is interesting and to, to learn a lot about and and to anchor some of my learnings around. But you're right. I think this, especially the latter part, sort of the zero trust that I was talking about. Uh, there are other folks that do something similar, and and certainly Cloudflare has something similar as well. Where they have, uh, I think Argo is the tunnel part, um, and then you can do authentication on top of that as well. Yeah, correct. Well, interesting. And this is a free service, so that's uh, it's a win-win, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. Because, you know, for me, it's fun. Uh, and this, this is something I learned uh, with BGP Mon, but but even at, uh, you know, while we are at Cisco, it's like, you know, you know, you can, you can, I want to learn, I want to experiment. And it's, all, you know, it's fun if other people actually use it as well and they'll give you feedback. So it gives you sort of this validation, like, oh, this is fun. I'm actually solving someone's problem. This is fun. And you get to learn what works and what doesn't work. And so there's a few, uh, I think uh, close to 100 people or so that have given it a spin right now and played with it and, uh, and giving me feedback, uh, which is fun. Um, and, um, you know, some people want to use it more. Some have just given it a try and moved on. Um, but I think uh, 
uh, as it goes, we're, I'm still working on it quite a bit and I still have lots of ideas of how to make it better. So we'll see, we'll see how much more time uh, we'll spend on it. But I think it is, it is some interesting potential. Yeah, would you say that this is like your, your ramp up into the wider problem that you're facing with, with control planes and security services? Or is this just a side project? Everything is a side project. So <laughs> as you said, I have a very wide uh, uh, interest. Um, so, uh, but I think um, this is one of the, the problems that I always wanted to learn more about and see what it would take to build something like this. Um, so this is all, one part of it. And then, yeah, the, the other project that's always looming is, yeah, how would I build, um, you know, a, a cloud-native firewall or a cloud-native high-available um, I don't know, NAT service that can do, you know, hundreds of gigs, but it's all built on something like AWS where you can pull nodes in and out and scale and all that kind of stuff uh, without uh, without losing connectivity. So, uh, but I think there might be opportunities to tie all of this together as well. I don't know. We'll see as we go along. <laughs> yeah, I think solving the issue of uh, doing active, active firewalling would be, uh, a, a really interesting challenge to solve, uh, apart from the control plane in the cloud and cloud native, etc. But some of the basic stuff is still really needed to solve, I guess. Um, Andre, we are close to the hour. Is there any other project we haven't mentioned? Because you're in a lot of projects and, and you always have a lot of ideas. Or did we discussed everything. No, I think we covered <laughs> most of the, at least the active ones. So the other ones are probably not really worth talking about. So, yes. Yeah. All right. <laughs> well, with that, Andre, thank you very much for uh, taking the time. Um, we will uh, keep following you. You are really active on, on Twitter and LinkedIn, etc. So I think we can invite the listeners to follow you there as well. In, in case anyone has questions with regards to uh, your latest uh, project, uh, mysocket.io, or any of the other ideas you have, how can they uh, get in touch with you? What, what would you prefer? Yeah, you can uh, you can always reach out to me on Twitter at atunk, uh, or just send me an email to andre at tunk.io, and that is uh, Andre with two E's. All right. Thank you very much. And with that, Andre, we've come to the end of this, this episode. Thank you very much uh, for being our guest today. Uh, it was really interesting hearing what you're working on and and to, to pick your brain on, on some topics. I hope uh, you allow us to come back maybe within six months or 12 months to see uh, where you are at that point. But uh, thanks again. Thanks for being our guest. Awesome. Yeah, that sounds great. And uh, thanks for having me, uh, Melchior and Rick, and uh, keep it up. This is an awesome podcast. All right. We'll, we'll do our best. All right. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Um, if you enjoy the podcast, uh, please subscribe. We are also on Twitter. Uh, we have a website, routingtable.cloud. If you have any comments or suggestions, please do re uh, reach out. Uh, we hope you enjoy this one and see you next time.